Today's scripture is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Please stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's word. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, praise God, we've got such wonderful, uh, not just musicians, but songwriters in our congregation. Alex, that was great. Uh, We're also blessed with uh, songs that have been written or composed by Keiko and uh, Noah. And what a gift. Let's not take it for granted. Uh, Thank you, Alex, for the work that you put into that. And uh, what a joy it was to sing it and to know that we're going to continue to sing it. Uh, We've reached the end of this paragraph that's found in verses 7 through 11, which is a brief summary, really, of everything that's been Pe- that Peter's been saying through the body of his letter about how to live as God's people in a world that's opposed to Christianity. And the bulk of the letter so far has been about how to live in the world. But here, in verses 7 through 11, this paragraph we've been looking at for the last several weeks, Peter's focus has been on how to live as God's people. He began, as we saw a number of weeks ago, by reminding them that the end of all things is at hand. That was, we see there right at the very beginning of verse 7. And, and we saw that he didn't mean by that that he had some kind of inside knowledge, like he had a hunch that Jesus was going to come back any second. Uh, that's not what he was saying. Rather, what Peter was saying is that in the grand scheme of God's redemptive plan, in the grand scheme of history, there's only th- one thing left to happen, and that was for Jesus Christ to return. And Peter wants his readers and he wants us today to live in light of that reality, that the only thing left to happen is for Jesus Christ to return. And that could happen at any time, but the timing isn't really the point at all. It's not about a hand on a clock. It's not about a date on the calendar. It's about the line on the horizon to which you are looking and longing over the course of your lifetime. What are you living for? Are you living with joyful expectation for the latest iPhone? Are you living with a sense of joyful expectation for the return of Christ? Because after all, the end of all things is at hand. That's all that's left to happen. So Peter wants anyone who's reading this book to live in light of that reality And in light of that fact, Peter says we ought to be people who have our heads on straight for the sake of our prayers. That's what he says there through the rest of verse 7. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He also says in light of the fact that the only thing that's left to happen is for Jesus to return, he says we ought to be people who love one another, who love one another well. So when you look at verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, and we said that that word earnestly had to do with the idea of enduring love. We're called to love one another with a love that endures through thick and thin. 
called to love one another with a forgiving love. Above all, verse 8, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. We're to love one another with a love that's welcoming. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And then finally, verse 10, we looked at this last week, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Our love for one another ought to spill over into actual acts of service to one another. We don't love with words only. We love indeed. When we live this way, Paul said, or Peter says in verse 10, we give glory to God because it is only in Christ that we are able to live this way. We give glory to God through Jesus Christ. But now we come to the very end, the last half of verse 11. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. To whom belongs the glory and dominion? Who does the him refer to? And the answer is Jesus. Most commentators agree that grammatically it makes the most sense to say that the him that's being referred to is Jesus. So a couple questions. Is it right to give glory to Jesus? Second question, doesn't all glory belong to God? And the answer to both questions is yes. Yes. There are several doxologies in the Bible. A doxology is a word of glory. Logos is the Greek word for word. Doxa is the Greek word for glory. Doxa, logos, doxology. It's a it's a glory word. And in several places in the New Testament, a glory word is spoken to Jesus Christ. First uh, Peter 5.11, if you've got your Bibles open, you can see it. Verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. It's a glory word spoken to Christ there. At the end of Second Peter, Peter will give glory to Jesus Christ. Second Peter 3.18 you also see glory given to Jesus in places like Romans 9, 5, and 2 Timothy 4, 18, and Revelation 1, 5 to 6. So, yeah, glory is given to Jesus in the Bible, but at the same time, to glorify Jesus is to glorify God. In John chapter 5, Jesus says that all judgment is given to him so that people may honor or glorify the Son just as they honor or glorify the Father. It doesn't make God less glorious, as if by glorifying Jesus, we're giving something to Jesus that rightfully belongs to God. God, Jesus is God, right? To glorify God is to glorify God the Father, to glorify God the Son. To glorify God the Son is to glorify God the Father, and vice versa. So yeah, it's right to give glory to Jesus. But what does it mean to give glory to Jesus? Let's come back to that word, that Greek word, doxa, that Greek word for glory. And that has two senses of meaning in the New Testament. On the one hand, it has to do with the revelation of something. When you speak of the doxa or the glory of God, something's being revealed, namely his majesty, his worth, his splendor, his holiness, his magnificence. So the doxa of God is the revelation of his perfection, and his splendor. But that word glory also carries with it this idea of response. His glory is revealed, and we respond by giving glory, if you will. Not in the sense that we're giving God something that he doesn't have 
or doesn't have enough of. That's not what it means to give glory to God. To give glory to God, in this case, to give glory to God the Son, Jesus Christ, is to acknowledge with our lips and with our lives what he already has in full. That's what it means to give him glory, to ascribe to him what he already has, the splendor and the majesty of God. So, glory. Peter was consumed with glory. The apostles were consumed with glory. The psalmists are all about glory. We rarely think of God's glory. And I'm, we meaning starting with me. It was very convicting to study this passage this morning and just reflect this morning, this week, and reflect. I started before this morning. It may not sound that way. It, it was very humbling this week to reflect on how little time I spend throughout the course of my day actually thinking about God's glory. At the same time, it was very convicting to realize how much time I spend relentlessly pursuing glory. Not God's glory, of course, but my own. So on the one hand, glory, we never think about it. On the other hand, all we do is relentlessly pursue it and never quite grasp it. And so this morning, glory. Glory. Specifically, the glory of Jesus Christ. Where is it revealed? Remember two sides of that word glory. Where is it revealed? And how are we to respond? So first, the revelation of Christ's glory. And then second, our response to Christ's glory. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we jump in this morning, we do pray that you would help us. Lord, lift up our eyes. Oh my, we spend so much time living for things that are so much less than your glory. We spend our times pursuing glory from things that could never, ever give it. When you call us to find, in a, in a way that we'll see, our glory in yours. And so, Lord, would you reorient our hearts and our thinking and our living that our ambition might be your glory. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first, the revelation of his glory. And there's three ways we're going to see the glory of Jesus Christ is revealed. First, from all eternity. Second, in history. And then third, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Today is the day of Pentecost. It's appropriate to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit every day, but especially so to mark that on this day. So the revelation of Jesus' glory from eternity. John chapter 1, verse 1, John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, referring, of course, to Jesus Christ. He'll go on and say, we beheld his glory. But Jesus is glorious from all eternity. Jesus, at the end of his earthly ministry in John 17, verse 5, prays, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. From all eternity, Jesus is glorious. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And I love the way one commentator, Simon Kistemacher, put it. He said, you know what? The moon reflects light. The sun radiates light because the sun is its source. 
Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He doesn't reflect something of the glory. He is God. And so he is the source of God's glory. So from all eternity, the glory of Jesus Christ revealed. But in history, during his earthly ministry, in the incarnation, for instance, continuing on with John 1 and verse 14, and the Word became flesh, the Word, God, Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, just the fact of the incarnation is a revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ in history. But also through his miracles during his earthly ministry. In John chapter 2, verse 11, after Jesus had turned the water into wine, the wedding in Cana, John says that that was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. As you go on through the, the accounts of the miracles of Jesus, they're all a revelation of his glory. There's that interesting passage uh, in the Gospels where it talks about you know, James and Peter and John going up the mountain with Jesus and the transfiguration taking place and something of the glory of Jesus Christ being revealed to them in a, in a special way. Peter reflects on it. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, Peter writes this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. It's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. A glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ revealed to Peter, James, and John. And then finally, in his earthly ministry, most unexpectedly, the glory of Jesus Christ revealed in his crucifixion. John's gospel in particular talks about the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ at the hour or the time, a time which was all bound up, Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and, and exaltation. Jesus refers to it as his hour. In fact, if you were to go back and do a word search just within the, the gospel of John, it would be great to just kind of try, I'm going to give you a few verses, but just kind of track with John, as he writes this letter and speaks of the hour of Christ. So in John 7, verse 30, John tells us they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus was in the treasury, and he had just finished teaching in the temple about the fact that he's the light of the world. And John tells us that no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. At the triumphal entry, when Jesus was entering Jerusalem, Jesus said to his disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's John 12, 23. Immediately, John 12, 27, Jesus says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And then in John 17, verse 1, during his, what's known as his high priestly prayer, we read that Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. 
glorify your son that the son may glorify you. What happened at that hour? Jesus was betrayed. He was handed over to wicked men. He was mocked. He was spat upon. He was forced to carry a cross, and then he was crucified. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. In this, as D.A. Carson says, John makes it clear that the supreme moment of divine self-disclosure, the greatest moment of displayed glory, was in the shame of the cross. It was in the flesh, in his crucifixion and resurrection and subsequent exaltation, that Jesus most clearly revealed his glory to the world. So the glory of Jesus Christ revealed from all eternity, the glory of Jesus Christ revealed in history, but then third, the glory of Jesus Christ revealed through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't walk around with a glow, right? I mean, everybody thought he's just a carpenter. It's Joseph's son, Mary's kid. Incarnation, revelation of the glory of the Word, the second person of the Trinity. Miracles, revelation of the glory. But not everybody saw the glory. Not everyone got a glimpse of the glory. Not everyone saw when the miracles were done that this was, in fact, the Son of God. No one, not everyone listened to his teaching. Very few, in fact, and believed that he was who he said he was. It had to be revealed to people then. It has to be revealed to people now. And that revelation comes through the ministry of of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. In John chapter 16, Jesus said to his disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And in Acts chapter 2, which you can read about later, Peter, after the Holy Spirit's been poured out, explains in his sermon, this is exactly what just took place. The helper's been given. The Spirit has been poured out. Why was the Spirit given? To glorify Jesus. I think it was uh, Sinclair Ferguson who referred to the Holy Spirit as the shy person of the Trinity. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't live to draw attention to himself. He, he lives to give glory to Jesus Christ and to God the Father, to God and to the Lamb. And so what does Jesus say in John chapter 16 concerning the Holy Spirit? He will glorify me. So the glory of Christ, something of his glory, is still revealed through his word, as we'll see in a minute, by his spirit. So the revelation of the doxa, the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus has all glory, all majesty, all splendor, all holiness, all beauty from all eternity in history. And through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we get a glimpse. How then must we respond? Well, there's five ways I want to touch on. But first, I want to highlight one that we want to avoid. How respond to the glory of Jesus Christ? The one way that we must avoid is with dread. Dread at the last day. Philippians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says 
At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All glory will be given to him. Some will gladly offer that glory. Others, well, for others, it'll be like John says in Revelation 6, 15 to 16. Everyone hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of of the Lamb. Dread. My dear friends, if your hope is not in Jesus Christ this morning, what I just read to you is the destiny that awaits you. Look to Jesus Christ. The wrath of the Lamb? It is avoided through trust in the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Lamb standing, verse Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 says, standing as slain. The slain lamb who died, cross, bearing the wrath from God that we deserve, the wrath that's referenced in Revelation chapter 6, standing, risen, offering life to all who will look to him. I know that just felt like one of those fire and brimstone moments. It was. There's nothing more important than this. There is this reality, life found in Christ or the wrath of the Lamb. Which will you choose? Five responses then to his glory that must characterize us now. First, fix your gaze upon him. Fix your gaze upon him. The psalmist seeks nothing more than to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire, or that word inquire could also be translated meditate, in his temple. And there, there's the clue. There's the key for us. How do we gaze upon the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? Meditate on Scripture. I love how John Owen put it in his book, The Glory of Christ. Owen says this, the glory of Christ is the pearl of great price, which we should make every effort to find. And the Scripture is the ocean into which we dive to discover it. Isn't that awesome? Nobody writes like that anymore. I'll read it again. The glory of Christ is the pearl of great price, which we should make every effort to find, and the scripture is the ocean into which we dive to discover it. He goes on in the glory of Christ to write this. If our future blessedness shall consist in living where he is and beholding his glory, what better preparation can there be for it than in a constant contemplation of that glory, that by a view of it we may be gradually transformed into the same glory. So that glory that awaits us, if, if, I mean, and John 17, 24, I think it is that Jesus prays, may they be with me, Father, that they may see my glory. If that's where we're headed, what Owen is saying is, well, why not start contemplating his glory now? You know, how, how could we better prepare ourselves for that day than to contemplate his glory now? And that makes sense in light of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians three eighteen, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory 
to another. So, so how does the Holy Spirit point, poured out at Pentecost reveal the glory of the Lord to us through the Word of God? How respond to His glory first by fixing your gaze upon Him, by meditating on His Word. Second response to the glory revealed in Jesus Christ, sing a new song to Him. Sing. Almost everywhere in the Bible where glory is given to God, it happens in song. Or it's written in order to be sung. Right? Case in point, the Psalms. I don't know who it was who said, no one goes to the Grand Canyon and sees it for the first time and yawns. I think it was John Piper. Sounds very Piperian. Right? No one goes to the Grand Canyon and sees it for the first time and kind of shrugs their shoulders and says, no big deal. How much more so with the glory of God? The, the right response to the revelation of, of God's glory is awe and wonder. And in Scripture, that most often trips over into song. But what do I mean by singing a new song? Well, you read this in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What did John mean by new song? Like they've been singing old songs their entire life and finally something new. No, there, there's this contrast and revelation between the original creation and the new creation or the redemption of all things in Jesus Christ. And you see that in, in Revelation 4, verse 11. Revelation 4, 11 is a song about that original creation. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. There's an old song in the sense of a song concerning the original creation. Revelation 5, is a, it's a new song. It's a redemption song. It's all about the new creation. Revelation 5 goes on, Then I looked and I heard around the throne the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. To sing a new song is to sing with anticipation and joy because of what Jesus has done to bring salvation to his people. So sing the old songs. They're still being sung in heaven. But don't forget to sing the new song. Don't forget to sing the song to Jesus. We live this side of Easter. Sing the new song. Fernando Ortega, in one of his songs, writes this, Sing to Jesus, His is the throne. Now and forever, He is the King of heaven. Sing to Jesus, we are His own. Now and forever, sing for the love our God has shown. So gaze upon His glory. Sing a new song. Third, find your glory in Him. Find your glory in Him. There is a glory with which we were created. 
created in the image of God, made kings and queens over creation. Psalm 8 says of mankind, crowned with glory and honor. And we lost something of that glory in the fall. I love the way Francis Schaeffer puts it. He refers to us now, this side of the fall, as glorious ruins. Ruined by the fall. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, but the image, not gone, just marred. Glorious ruins. And we all still have a sense that we're made for glory. We long for glory, and we waste our lives seeking to find it where it cannot be found. We look to our career and say, bring me something of the worth, of the value that I was created to know and have lost in a way that I can't even fully comprehend, but, but career, will you provide that for me? Spouse, will you provide that for me? Children, will you provide that for me? Church, will you provide that for me? Give me the glory that I've lost. Oh, we're living that way without even realizing it. But there's a glory that's found in Jesus Christ. Paul in Romans 8, 17 says it is a glory that we will share with Christ, that we will be glorified with Jesus. And Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says that that, in fact, is the purpose of our salvation. Listen, listen to this. God chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What Adam would have realized had he passed the test, what was lost in the fall, what we give our lives grasping to obtain to no avail is found once and for all in Jesus Christ in a due contemplation of his glory. Behold the glory. Again, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In his glory we find ours, which is another way of saying that by looking to him, ascribing glory to him, living for his glory and not your own, you will finally find the glory you've been chasing your entire life. How respond to the revelation of Christ's glory? Fix your gaze upon him. Sing a new song to him. Find your glory in him, but forth, be willing to suffer with him. Now, we're going to touch on that more next week. That's really the, the theme of the next section of 1 Peter that we're going to look at. But coming back to Romans 8, 17, Paul says, If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In the New Testament, there's no glory. There's no sharing in the glory of Jesus Christ apart from suffering with Christ. The two go hand in hand. Suffering now, glory then. We'll come back to that more next week. So how respond to the revelation of Christ's glory? Fix your gaze upon him. Sing a new song to him. Find your glory in him. Be willing to suffer with him. And finally, long for his return. 
the end of all things is at hand. The whole earth right now is full of the glory of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim are, are circling around the throne and they call out to one another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. One day, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of his glory. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Until then, my dear brothers and sisters, we know only in part. The Holy Spirit, through the Word, gives us the ability to know something of the glory. We get a glimpse once given faith to believe. But one day Jesus will return. One day we'll have more than a glimpse of his glory. Now we know in part, on that day we shall be known fully, even as we have been fully known by God. Until then, long for his return. 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, Paul writes, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have, and the ESV says, loved his appearing. But it can also be translated, in other translations, is translated, longed for his appearing. How much of that characterizes us? But God, there are good things that you've given me on this earth, a, a wonderful family, health at least for now, a great church to love. But let it be that the one thing I earnestly desire it's the full revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ, not with the response of longing to have the mountains cover me, but instead to be able to bask in the glory because of the blood of the Lamb. Long for the return of Jesus Christ. The glory of Jesus Christ was revealed during his earthly ministry in the most remarkable and humbling of ways, his crucifixion. Throughout the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we get a glimpse of his glory now, but one day the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. For some, that will be a, great, a day of great dread. But for those who have looked at Jesus Christ, it will be the day in which we finally live. Until then, gaze upon his glory as revealed in Scripture. Sing a new song to him for what he has done and what he will yet do. Find your glory in his. Be willing to suffer for him, that you might be glorified with him and long for his return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you now, having studied this text together, I pray that by your Spirit, you will seal these truths to our hearts. Lord, that we would long for a fuller glimpse of the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the radiance of your glory and the exact representation of your being. And that we would do so with a sense of anticipation and joy. And Lord, for those who are here this morning who may be feeling a sense of 
apprehension and dread? Would you woo them? Will you call them to yourself? Will you give them the hope that is found only in your Son, Jesus Christ, by giving them new life and giving them that precious gift of faith that they might turn from their sin and believe? And Lord, may it be that all of us who are gathered here this morning are looking with eager anticipation for the return of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.